be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. And if you're lacking a Bible, let us know. Just uh, lift up a quick hand and we've got some ready to pass out right now. Acts 19. And we will read the first seven verses of the chapter. And Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you guide our pastor as he preaches the word? Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and our ears and our minds so that we can receive your word? And thank you for your word, God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what you say. So, God, I pray that we would delight in your word as we would delight in bread. And that your word would fill us up, feed us, make us strong. That it would help us to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 19 is our latest stop as we're journeying through the book of Acts verse by verse. We've been going through, through Acts now for a while, and actually today's message we're with the last Acts sermon for a little while because next week we're going to break away and do a special sermon series uh, to bring uh, a, a new emphasis that, that Deemer and I have been praying about for this year, and so we'll break away and do a, a sermon series uh, for the next couple of months, but so right now we'll stop and Acts after today's message, and then we'll pick it up a couple of months later. But if you're familiar with, if you've been following, you know, the story, you know that Peter, that Paul now has begun his third missionary journey. The last uh, couple of messages we were in Acts, we saw that, that Paul, he uh, goes to the city of Corinth. You remember that uh, Corinth was such a wicked city, such a difficult city, and when he goes there, he's probably a little bit down. God encourages him, strengthens him during that time in Corinth. A very strong, vibrant church has begun there in Corinth. And then Paul leaves Corinth uh, because he has made some sort of vow to the Lord. We don't know all the details as to what that vow was, but he's made a vow to the Lord that requires him to return to Jerusalem. So he leaves via Ephesus and he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, a couple of people that he met, a couple of believers that he met in Corinth, and he takes them with him 
and establishes them in Ephesus, leaves them there to get their business started. They were tent makers so they could begin to have a church in their home. Paul preaches briefly in Ephesus, but then heads back to um, Palestine. To, he goes back to first um, Caesarea, then up to Jerusalem to visit the church, and then back to his home church, which was uh, the church in Antioch. And so that's where the author of, of Acts, which is Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke leaves us right there, leaves Paul right there for a little bit. Actually, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the beginning of the third missionary journey because it says Paul then goes and begins to visit the churches that were already established. But then Luke breaks away from Paul for just a little bit. And we looked at that last week. You come back to the scene in Ephesus where we saw Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they meet a guy by the name of Apollos. And Apollos was a believer. I believe from the scripture you can discern that he is a, he is a Christian. But he's a little bit confused in his doctrine regarding Jesus, perhaps regarding baptism. And so they come and they help teach him, help, um, help him to learn more accurately the ways of Jesus. And then he goes on and continues his ministry. He becomes a very powerful force in the early church. So after that brief story, Luke brings us back to Paul's journeys. And we see here in verse 1 that while Apollos was at Corinth, because what happens, Apollos leaves Ephesus. He's sent off by the church in Ephesus to go to Corinth to help strengthen the church there. While Apollos is at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland, um, the inland company and came to uh, Ephesus. Okay? Country, not company, sorry. And came to Ephesus. And we read that in verse number uh, one. And so, if you'll remember, this area now that Paul's going through was the exact area that the Holy Spirit forbid him from going before. But now he has the freedom. The Holy Spirit is now allowing him to go through what the, what the province called Asia, the Roman province of Asia, and he comes to Ephesus. Now, Next, the next sermon we do through the book of Acts, I may give you a little bit more details about Ephesus. But Ephesus was just another one of the major metropolitan cities, uh, metropolitan centers of that day and age. Paul centered his ministry on cities. He made, he, they went into cities first. And it was once cities had churches begun, then the gospel began to spread out into outlying regions. Now, I think... Sometimes we look at chapter divisions and verse divisions and it, and it causes us to not be able to see exactly uh, the whole uh, of certain sections of Scripture. And I think that this passage here today is supposed to be coupled with the passage from last week or from the week before because last week was Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, because I think what Luke decides to do here is to give us a couple of stories, a couple of narrative accounts uh, that help us to see that the gospel or that the church... Uh, is still in transition from Old Testament believers under the old covenant system to now those who are in the, in the new covenant reality of Jesus Christ. And there's this transition. The whole book of Acts is sort of this transition period. So you have this guy named Apollos who uh, knows a lot about Jesus but apparently is confused in a few different areas. And then we meet these 12 guys today in today's passage who are actually in a worse state than Apollos because I believe from the text we'll see today that they're not even saved. They're not even really believers that have saving faith. And so, but they have some sort of um, introduction into Christianity, if you will. They know perhaps something about Jesus. They, they definitely know about John the Baptist. Perhaps they were 
disciples of the John the Baptist. We don't, we don't know exactly what's going on here. This is one of the frustrating things about some passages sometimes is that Luke just doesn't give us all the details. I have a thousand questions I want to ask Luke and, and wonder why you didn't put that in, in there. And, of course, when I get to heaven, he'll say, because the Holy Spirit didn't leave me to put it in there, you doofus. But for whatever reason, there's, we don't have all the details that, that you'd like to have here. But we have enough details uh, to see that this is just a period of transition here, and there's some things that happen during these periods of transition that aren't necessarily normative. You remember early on when we did the ser- start of the series in Acts, I used a, a baton to sort of illustrate this transition period that Acts is. Okay, so you have your Old Testament, Old Covenant believers who were looking forward to the cross, putting their faith in the Messiah to come, and they they. Is that's the old covenant, and then Jesus comes, and, and his ministry on earth, he's, he dies, he's buried, he rises again, and the church is begun in Acts chapter 1, and there's sort of this transition period where we're going from old covenant to new covenant. So like, a, like in a relay race where, where it's being, the baton is being handed off, this is a very important time in the early church, but there's some things in here that are hard to understand, and there's some things that are, that are not necessarily normative uh, for our day and age today. So uh, I want you to, I want to use that illustration a couple of times today as we talk about this transition period. So what we have here in this passage is that Paul comes through the, the province of Asia, comes into Ephesus, and it says he found some disciples. Okay, I want to talk about whether or not these men that he encounters are genuine disciples of Jesus. Are they really Christians? Matter of fact, today I want us to think about what it means to be a real, genuine believer. I think one of the reasons that Luke includes this passage, besides just showing the transitional nature of the book of Acts, is I think in this particular passage, he wants readers to see what true Christianity looks like. What is true belief in the one who came? What does it look like? And I think that's one of the reasons he gives us this. Is it real? Is your Christianity real? Real. I think those who are reading Luke, reading this portion of Acts, would have asked themselves that question. Am I one of these twelve, or do I have evidence that the Holy Spirit is in me? I was, um, maybe you guys saw the story this week. Um, Well, kids, what's your favorite fast food restaurant to eat at? What? Chick-fil-A. Okay. Okay, Chick-fil-A. Besides Chick-fil-A, that's probably going to be most of them. Victoria? McDonald's, okay? Olivia? I mean, imitate. What? Chick-fil-A. I said, no more Chick-fil-A. All right, please, no more Chick-fil-A. Uh, what? IHOP. IHOP. That's not really Pizza Hut. Okay. No one's hitting the one I'm aiming for. Moe's? Closer. Subway. Well... You know, one of my favorites, at least up until this week, has been Taco Bell. Now, I don't know if you saw the story this week or not, but uh, apparently somebody took a taco and analyzed it and is now suing Taco Bell because they determined that, despite the fact that you see the commercials and they talk about, you know, this 100% beef chalupa or whatever you're eating, that the beef chalupa is not really 100% beef. They determined it was 32% beef. So 32% of that stuff that's in the taco, only 32% is, is beef, is meat. Now, Taco Bell countered, which I thought was actually kind of funny. 
They came back and said, it's not true. 83% of it's beef. Which I thought was, was quite interesting. So 83%, they said the rest of it's just spices and stuff like you would use in your own home cooking. Yeah, so yeah, 83% meat and the rest carcinogens. But anyway, so I thought about that story today as I was, this morning as I was getting ready, the last minute preparations as I was putting some finishing touches on the message today and thinking about how you, you want real, you want genuine, you don't want to go to a restaurant that has any percentage less than 100 on any one of their foods, <laughs> that you want it to be real, you want it to be genuine, okay, and our world's filled with fake things, right, you can go, you can go in our coffee bar back there, we were talking about that this morning, you can have the fake sugar or the real sugar, and in this story here, there is some people who are calling themselves disciples but Paul quickly discerns that they're not real disciples. So I've only got two points in the message today. The first one is this. True Christianity is evidenced by the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. True Christianity is evidenced by the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. All true believers have the Spirit of God residing in them. Let's look at this text. Verse 2, he said, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. By the way, this is the last mention of John the Baptist in all the New Testament. First thing we need to determine as we come to this text here is what type of disciples are they? What does this mean? Now, many of the commentators that I've read on this passage feel that this is referring to them as being disciples of someone other than Christ. Maybe it's referring to them being disciples of John the Baptist. We do know that there were a lot of disciples of John the Baptist. Matter of fact, historians outside of the biblical record, historians have shown that there were disciples of John the Baptist even into the second century of the church. Many of the disciples of John the Baptist, hopefully most of the disciples of John the Baptist, understood what he was actually teaching and therefore became disciples of Christ, but some didn't. Some elevated John the Baptist to a status that he didn't want to be elevated to. He wanted to be made less. He wanted to be minimized so that Christ could more could be made of him. But there were some that made much of John and, and, and thought he was the Messiah or thought he was a prophet at equal status with Jesus. So I don't know exactly who these guys are, but some commentators believe that they are disciples of John the Baptist. I think they were at least that. They're probably disciples of John the Baptist. We know they were baptized into the baptism of John. Apollos may have been part of a group like that. Now, the word disciple means learner or follower. Okay, so at least they were followers of John the Baptist. They had learned um, from John the Baptist. But the uniform use of the word disciple by Luke in not only the Gospel of Luke, but also in Acts is when he's referring to someone being a follower or learner of Jesus. I doubt Luke would have left it ambiguous here. I think if he wanted us to see that these were disciples of John the Baptist, he would have said that. I may be wrong. It's not necessarily too vital of a point here. But I think the matter is, I think what's happening here is these guys have somehow become associated with the church or somehow gotten, become associated with the other believers in Ephesus. We know that a church has begun in Ephesus. And Paul meets them. 
he meets these disciples or whom he considers to be disciples and then identify, figures out that they're not true disciples. They're not true followers of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the word disciple is synonymously used with believer or with Christian. But just because someone calls himself a disciple doesn't mean that he or she actually believes in Jesus in a salvific sort of way. John 6, chapter, John chapter 6, verse 66, if you remember this passage, there were a lot of Jesus' disciples, and they were called disciples, who left him after he taught them about, he was talking about, unless you drink of my blood and eat my body, you can have no part of the kingdom of heaven. And after he was saying these things, a lot of them said, well, this is too hard of a teaching because they didn't understand what he was talking about, and they left him. But they were called disciples as well. So just because someone's called a disciple doesn't necessarily mean that they are a true believer. So I'm not sure what quite's going on here with these guys, but I do know this. I do know that they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit, therefore they are not true disciples, true Christians in the New Testament sense. Paul asks him, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Look at Paul's question here. He assumes that you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. That's the question assumes that. There are people out there today that believe that you have to receive the Holy Spirit after you've been saved. Paul doesn't leave any room for questioning that here. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When identifies the moment of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which was when? When you believed. The moment you receive the Spirit is when you believe. So please don't misread this text today because we'll get to the section here at the end where, where Paul lays his hands on them and they um, receive this special anointing of the Spirit that, 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 that manifests itself in a very unusual and supernatural way. Please don't take this to mean that there's some sort of second blessing that all Christians should be aiming for, should be receiving where we receive the Spirit. Paul was troubled because they didn't have the Spirit. He was troubled because when they believed, they should have received the Spirit, but they didn't. So apparently their belief wasn't centered on the right thing. The presence of the Holy Spirit in all true believers is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. It's the consistent teaching of the New Testament that all true believers have God's Holy Spirit indwelling them. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when? When? And when you believed in him, were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul, writing to the very church that's in Ephesus, to the very church that is in Ephesus, he says that when you believe... You received the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we're all made to drink of one spirit. There's not a special class of Christians out there who have the spirit. And another group of Christians that don't have the spirit. We all, if you're a true believer, have the spirit of God. Romans 8, 9. This is the most clear passage of scripture to me about the spirit Romans 8 9 anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him it's really that simple so Paul sees these guys they apparently don't have the spirit therefore they don't belong to him 
They don't belong to Jesus. John 3, verse 5 and following, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a supernatural thing that God does. It's called rebirth, and it happens when the Holy Spirit comes in, regenerating our heart. We cannot be saved apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the presence of the Holy Spirit is the evidence that a person is a true believer. One of the great tragedies in the church today, I believe, is the lack of Holy Spirit power in the church. The lack of any true evidence of the Spirit's presence and of the Spirit's power. I look at a lot of the things churches do and even our church does, and there's so much we can do in our own strength, we don't need the Holy Spirit. There's so much that happens in the church today that just leaves no room for any sort of evidence that the Spirit's at work. I believe it's one of the great tragedies of the church today. Where is the evidence that the Spirit is at work? Where's the distinction from the way the world does things and the way we should do things? That only comes from the power of the Spirit at work. Where's the hunger for God's Word in the church today? The hunger for God's Word only comes from the Spirit's presence in you, making you hungry for the Word of God. Where's the appetite for a deep knowledge of God? Where's the desire for holiness, to be holy like He's holy? We don't have that desire to be holy because we are sinful to the core. Only through the Holy Spirit's work in us can we have a desire to be holy like He is holy. Where is the pursuit of holiness in the church today? Where is the affections that are stirred up for God's glory, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. Where is that today? Without the Spirit, it's not there. Where's the boldness? Where's the supernatural wisdom? Where's the desire to make Christ famous in the world? Where's the love so amazing, so deep that it can't be quenched? Where's that joy that can't be stopped? Where's the peace that passes all understanding? Where's the patience in our world that demands instant results? Where's the kindness that shows that we are the hands and the feet of Christ? Where is the goodness that people see and give glory to our Father in heaven? Where is the faithfulness in a generation that cannot comprehend commitment or covenant? Where is the gentleness and the meekness that trusts God to be our defender? Where is the self-control in a world that says, throw off your inhibitions? Where is the Spirit today in the church? Is it not the case that these things that I just mentioned are more the exception than the rule in the church today, in our lives today. Either many, many, many disciples of Christ have quenched and thus have grieved and thus have resisted the Spirit of God, or many, many disciples of Christ are not really disciples of Christ. They may say they follow, but like these men, they don't have a clue what it means to follow because there's no hunger for the things of God. There's no power to live for God. There's no spirit because there's never been any regeneration. There's never been true conversion or salvation. Repentant, less, easy believe, check a box here, nod your head, 
have a handshake, make Jesus your best friend, Jesus save me, but I don't want him to be my Lord type of conversion requires no work of the Holy Spirit. You can do that, and I can do that on our own. You can check a box. You can pray a prayer. You can give me a handshake and say, brother, I want to be part of the church. We can all do that in our own strength. True conversion, where everything about us is flipped upside down and our whole world changes, that happens only when the Spirit of God has His way in your heart. Only when the Spirit of God is at work. Is there evidence of the Spirit at work in our churches and harbins in us individually? I, I, as I prepared this message, I literally just began to have a knot in my stomach last night because I wondered if people look at harbins as they drive by do they look at us? Do they look at this church and they say, the Spirit of God is happening there? Or is it just another thing that man did? And it, and it makes me so anxious. Do, how about myself? Do people look at me and my family and say, the Spirit of God is at work in the Doyle home? Because I don't care how you think about what we do. What I care about is for you and others to see God at work. That's a home where God has control. In his book, Jonathan Edwards wrote a lot of books, but one of the books, little books he wrote, was called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Jonathan Edwards, in the mid-1700s, um, was, if you don't know about Jonathan Edwards, go learn about Jonathan Edwards, was one of the most influential pastors in America. Of course, this was before America was uh, independent, therefore it was part of the colonies. But Jonathan Edwards... Um, his preaching in, in Northampton, God used what was happening there as well as some other New England colonies to begin a, a, an awakening. And it's what we call the first great awakening. And Jonathan Edwards wrote this as he was trying to recall and write down what God did during this time when the Spirit had its way with the people of Northampton and with his own family and with the town. And there's this great move of God happening. This is what he wrote. He said, this work of God as it was carried on, and the number of true saints multiplied, soon made a glorious alteration in the town, so that in the spring and the summer following the year of 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love, nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn. Husbands over their wives. Wives over their husbands. The doings of God were then seen in his sanctuary. God's day was a delight and his tabernacles were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbor. I give, I give, I love to just have one Sunday like that. Much less a period where God's just moving. Because that's God work. No, no preacher, no matter how good he speaks, can stir that up. Matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards preached from 
manuscripts. From what I've read, he held on to the, his pulpit and looked down and never made eye contact with his people and just read the manuscript in a very monotone voice. Sinners in the hands of an angry God in a monotone voice holding on to the sides of the pulpit. Because it wasn't Jonathan Edwards' skill and rhetoric that moved upon Northampton in such a way that salvation just came to all sorts of people. It was the Spirit of the Holy God at work. That's true salvation. That's true work of God is when the Spirit forms an awakening in a heart or in a church or in a family. I've begged God often for God to use Harbin's for a center place if he wants to. It's his will be done, not mine, for a new awakening to happen. I would love for, for, for God to start doing an awakening in this community, in Georgia and beyond, and, and use Harbin's as part of that. But, but that's, that's looking way too far down the road because it has to start each individual heart. My prayer needs to be, Lord, start explosive awakenings in the hearts of the people in our church. So I want us to think, what would Paul, how would Paul react to you and me if he were to meet you? Let's say today he were to walk in or he were to meet you out in the workplace and he comes up and meets you and he sees your life, he sees the way you speak with your mouth, he sees the way you handle things. Would he ask you the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? As I thought about that, I thought, I wonder how many times Paul would be asking me that question. Steve, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because it sure doesn't look like it. Would Paul ask us that question if he saw you and me singing? If Paul had, had Mark's vantage point to stand right here and he sees you guys singing about the glories of God... Does he see it on your faces? Does he see it in your smiles? Does he see it in your affections that you love God so much that, yes, the Spirit is alive out here? Or would he say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How about with our witnessing or our not witnessing? How about with our parenting? How about with the way we treat our spouses? How about the decisions we make at work? How about when we're sitting at our computer all alone with no one around? How about when we're watching TV? When we're handling our money or when we're worrying about our money? When we're reading our Bible or we're not reading our Bible? When we're praying or we're not praying? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because just because you say you're a Christian, just because you say you're a believer, it doesn't mean much at all. The evidence is whether or not the Spirit of God is having His way with your life. The Spirit of God should be evident in our lives. And if it's not evident, it's either because we are quenching and resisting and grieving the Spirit of God. Or it's not there. He's not there at all. It's one of the two options. The Spirit of God should move in our lives in such a way that it cannot be ignored. That, that we can't be ignored. The Spirit of God should be so present in Harbin's that Harbin's can't be ignored because God's working here. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. I read Romans 8 and 9 earlier where I talked about if the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ does not dwell with you, then you do not belong to Christ. Well, let me read the verses preceding that. Verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is not set on the flesh is hostile that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We prayed prayer earlier from Psalm 119 to delight in God's word. We want to, we want to, to, to pursue God and his statutes and his law. You cannot do that. It's impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul, basically in Romans, was saying, boy, there's a way to live where your life is set on the things of the world and on the flesh, but you Christians shouldn't be like that. Your, your mind and your life should be set on the Spirit. Matter of fact, you shouldn't be anything like this over here. Because if you are like this over here, that means you don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, that means you're not a Christian. You don't belong to God. These, quote-unquote, disciples responded to Paul's question by saying, Oh, we've not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. I read that, I'm like, what? I mean, first of all, um, some... I think this is a difficult thing to read because some commentators try to say, well, maybe they just meant that they had not heard that the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost. But that's not what they said. Maybe that is what they meant. But I'm just going to go with what they said. They said, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, this shows me that they weren't good disciples of John, even. (laughs) Because John the Baptist said in Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, who straps whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit that, ref- that, that Luke is referring to here in Luke is, is it first happened at the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the subsequent immersing of all true believers into the Spirit when you're saved. The moment you are saved, you are immersed, you are baptized into God's Spirit. He dwells within you. There is no such thing as a Holy Spirit-less Christian. There may be and are Holy Spirit-less people who sometimes attend church and sing and go through the motions. But they are not Christians. Not only are these guys not good disciples of John, they're really not good students of the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit's all over the Old Testament. So these guys didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They're not good disciples of John. And they haven't read the Old Testament very closely because at the very beginning, Genesis 1-2, it says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Psalm 51, David says as he's repenting and confessing his sin before God, cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then Ezekiel 36, 27. These are just a few of the many, many passages about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But this text referring to the New Covenant, God said, I will put my Spirit within you. You are only part of the New Covenant if Ezekiel 36, 27 is true. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Who causes us to be able to obey God and to love God and to desire God and to want God and to, to be able to show love when, when the world would want to show hate and to be able to be patient when, when, when our flesh wants us to be impatient? Who makes that happen? Only the Spirit of God can make that happen. Only God's Spirit can make that happen, that God gives us when we enter into belief in Jesus Christ. So it is the Spirit of God that makes us Christians, that makes us new covenant participants. But I'm afraid many of us live like these guys. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we know intellectually that there's a Holy Spirit, but do you know it experientially? If you come and say to me, yeah, I know there's a Holy Spirit, but how do you know there's a Holy Spirit? Have you felt power, the power of the Holy Spirit in you to do something that you could never do on your own? Can you tell me that you know there's a Holy Spirit and not just because you read it in the Bible? We know it notionally but not affectionately. We don't experience the power, the peace, the boldness, the assurance, the wisdom, the love, the patience, the goodness. The self-control, the presence of the Spirit changes everything. You remember Peter before Pentecost and Peter after Pentecost? You got Peter who, who denied Jesus three times and he's, he's weeping over that. And, and then he's not even really going about and doing the things that Jesus has told him to do. Because in John, at the end of John, Jesus had told his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. But what do we see? We see Peter out fishing when he should be out witnessing. And Jesus has to come and, and res- kind of restores Peter. But even after that, they're still up in the upper room. They're, they're praying. They're sort of this meek, uh, just kind of hidden sort of group, scared. And then what happens? Boom. Acts chapter 2, everything changes. And Peter and the rest of the disciples and the apostles become fearless. Every single one of the apostles were martyred. They become fearless. And so, have you experienced that change? We lack evidence of the Holy Spirit because, and I'll say it again, we're either grieving the Spirit, resisting the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, or the Spirit is not there because our faith has been misplaced. Which brings me to my second point. True Christianity is evidenced by the uncompromising centrality of Jesus Christ. And he said to them, verse 3, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one, the Messiah, the Christ, to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus It's this passage of Scripture that leads me to believe more than any other passage that we've read here that these guys were not true believers because they had not placed their hope in the one who was to come. I was originally, and I told you guys this two weeks ago, and I apologize for diverting from my original plan, but honestly, I didn't feel the Spirit of God let me go there. I was originally going to preach the bulk of this sermon on how people in the Old Testament were saved. Because I think that's an honest question that most Christians ask. You read, you look at the left side of the book here and the right side of the book here, and the left side seems a little bit different than the right side. 
and it's very easy to get confused sometimes. But the left side of the book is much more like the right side than we realize because God is the same from beginning to end. And, and so the Old Testament, how, how are people in the Old Testament saved? What about these guys? These guys were Jews apparently. And, and were they saved? What was going on? I would say no, they were not saved because right here it says they didn't understand what John's baptism was all about. It was pointing to the one who was to come. That's Jesus, the one who was to come. It was pointing to the Christ. The entire Old Testament points to the one who was to come, the Christ. And when I say Christ, please don't think that a lot of people, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's his title. It's the Messiah, the one, the deliverer, the servant who was to come. And so, if we look at the Old Testament, just real, quick, real, real simply, how were people in the Old Testament saved? God's people were saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's really that simple. It's really, really that simple. If you hear, and there are some bad theological constructs out there that say the Old Testament people were saved by keeping the law and by the sacrifices, that is totally impossible. It cannot be true. Why can it not be true that Old Testament people were saved by keeping the law and observing the sacrifices? Here's why. Because God's standard has never changed. What's God's standard for salvation? Perfection. It's never changed. It's been his standard from the get-go. It's his standard now. And so the, the Bible makes it very clear that the blood of bulls and goats were insufficient. They were not sufficient enough to, to forgive sin. Abraham was told to walk before God blameless, yet we read he sinned. Moses, who gave the law, was sinned and kept out of the promised land. The fall ensured that all descendants of Adam are sinners. Therefore, law-keeping cannot be a way to salvation. If law-keeping were the way to salvation in the Old Testament, if that's true, that every single Old Testament believer or every single Old Testament character is in hell because they all broke the law. So law-keeping cannot be it. And Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And as I mentioned, Hebrews is the, it's Hebrews where we read about the blood of goats and the blood of lambs uh, not being sufficient to cover the sins of, our, of God's people. Therefore, a greater sacrifice, a substitute, a perfect substitute, had to come. Everything in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices, all the festivals, everything that they kept, all the law was pointing towards. It was types and symbols pointing to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who according to Revelation was slain from the foundation of the world. So from the very beginning, God's, from the foundation of the world, God's means for salvation was the slain blood of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So from the very beginning, it's been faith in the Lamb of God, faith that God was going to keep his promises, that God would provide a way. John 8, 56 Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, 
So Abraham looked forward to a day when there, someone would be sacrificed for him. He rejoiced to see that day. It says he saw it, how? In faith, and he believed. Old Testament believers, therefore, like Abraham, saw by faith that God would save them, and they put their hope in the Deliverer that he would one day send the Christ. So the Old Testament is just like the New Testament. It's a book of grace. It really is. It's all about God's grace. So I'm going to go back to my baton here. So you got the Old Testament believers, and they're passing on to the New Testament believers, and there's this time of transition when the cross came. But my baton says Jesus Christ on it because the Old Testament believers were holding firm to not the law, not to being good. The Old Testament believers were holding firm to the faith in Christ, the faith in the one who is to come. And then the New Testament believers, we look back in faith at the one who came. And so this is a time of transition here in Acts that we're seeing. Now back to our text real quick and we're, we're wrapping it up now. I think in this passage here today, as we read earlier, as I mentioned earlier, I think Apollos was saved. I just think he needed some correction by Priscilla and Aquila. Because it says he was teaching accurately the things of Jesus. His hope, his faith was in Jesus. But these guys, they had not heard that of the one who was to come, or at least not understood that Jesus was the one who was to come. But upon hearing this in verse 5, they were baptized into the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. The consistent New Testament witness is that after proper faith, after putting your hope in Christ, you are baptized. You're baptized. And so that's what happens here. So we're called to make disciples of all nations. We're called to make disciples and to baptize them because baptism follows the profession of faith. And as Baptists, we believe that And we teach that. Verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. What's happening here? I really don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but I need to. Um, Laying on the hands was a symbolic gesture. A symbolic gesture of solidarity. A token of fellowship. Only three times is it ever associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit. Okay, It happens uh, at Pentecost. I mean, it happens in Acts 8, 17 with the, with the Samaritans. It happens with Paul in Acts chapter 9 and here. All of the references to laying on of hands usually refers to sending people out or setting them apart for ministry or praying over them, praying for healing or praying. And so there's laying on of hands. But this is, there's only three times where it's referred to the Spirit being used, being used in some way for the Spirit to come upon someone in some sort of unusual way. Now, this is something unusual that's happening here. Remember, this is transitional. God is giving another supernatural sign that the Spirit is indeed upon these men. He's giving another supernatural sign, just as it happened in Pentecost. At Pentecost, there were 120 who who began to speak in tongues when the Spirit came upon them. But we have no evidence that the 3,000 who then believed began to speak in tongues. Okay, so it's not something that's expected of all believers. Okay, it happened with Cornelius. We see it happen there. And we know that it happened, uh, it might have happened at Samaria, but we don't know for sure. But God supernaturally allows the speaking of other languages, and these are languages, as a sign that the Spirit has come. And for whatever reason, God does it here again to confirm His message. We do not have time now to go into a whole lot of detail. Perhaps we could later. If you want to sit down and talk about tongues, we can do that. Real quick. 
Tongues are always in the scripture. If it were translated properly, it would be translated languages. But we've come to use the phrase tongues so much that the translators just use, leave it there. But the word is languages. Okay, in other words, languages that other people can understand. At Pentecost, there were people from all other lands. They came, they understood. It wasn't some sort of ecstatic, unintelligible babble. Okay, this is the third and last time that, that tongues is ever mentioned in Acts. And no other narrative passage includes any discussion of tongues. The only other time tongues is mentioned is in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Where Paul sets some very strict guidelines on their use. He condemns the church in Corinth for the way it was being used. He clarifies that not all are intended to speak in tongues. He minimizes the importance of tongues in comparison to other gifts such as prophecy and teaching. And he says that they're a sign. They're a sign for unbelieving Jews that God was opening the door to the Gentiles. Paul tells us all of this in 1 Corinthians. That is not consistent with most teaching you hear on tongues today. So I don't know a lot to think about tongues sometimes. Can it happen again? Perhaps. All I know this is that most teaching on tongues that's out there today is totally inconsistent with the scriptures. It was a sign to show the universality of the gospel message. It was a sign that the end times had come. It's a preview of the eventual reversal of the curse that happened at Babel, at the Tower of Babel. It really is a beautiful thing when you think about it in that context. But remember, this is a transitional time. God's doing unusual things. He's especially using his apostles to do supernatural signs to confirm that the gospel message is true, to confirm that it's apostolic teaching. Their confirmation is no longer needed. If you want to know if a doctrine or a teaching that you hear is apostolic, you want to know how to find out? It's not to ask them to do a miracle. It's to cross-reference what they're teaching with this. Cross-reference what you're hearing being taught with this. That's how you know whether or not it's apostolic teaching or not. Whether it's true. But during this transitional time, God used signs to confirm. So back to kind of wrap us up here. Do you know, do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling you? Do you see God's Spirit represented in your character, in your living? Are you aware that He's there? If there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, if there's no evidence of God's power in your life, what's the problem? Are you quenching the Holy Spirit as 1 Thessalonians 5.19 talks about? Are you grieving the Holy Spirit, which Ephesians 4.30 talks about? Or are you simply not in possession of the Holy Spirit? Because you haven't put your faith in the one Jesus who came. So where does your hope reside? Is it in a religious system? Is it in a series of, a series of actions? Is it in a series of, of, uh, of works? Is it in baptism? Or have you believed in the one who, come, who came and put all of your hope, all your strength, all your faith in him and nothing else? Anything less than faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, is less than Christianity. Unlike Taco Bell meat, there's no such thing as a 32% Christian. You're either 100% or zero. It's that simple. 100% or zero. And the evidence is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, if you're wondering, if you're questioning your own faith, deal with God. Work with God. If, you're, if you've got problems where you need to confess sin and you're quenching and grieving the Spirit, deal with God. 
And for those who maybe for the first time have understood what the true Christian message is about, I'm just going to say what Peter said in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you now, as we close this time, Lord, I was so convicted this week about whether or not the Spirit is really evident in my life. God, I want to be more of a spirit-controlled Christian. I believe that your spirit's there. I felt the power of your spirit, but I quench it so many times, and I resist the spirit sometimes. So, God, I confess that to you this morning. I know that as I confess that personally, I'm also confessing it for a lot of people in this room. So, God, forgive us of our lack of relying on the Holy Spirit instead of of being filled with the Spirit, we've been drunk with a thousand other things. Maybe not wine, maybe it is wine. But we've been drunk with TV. We've been drunk with our hobbies. We've been drunk with uh, trying to solve our own problems. We've been drunk with a thousand things and been, not been filled with the Holy Spirit. Fill us up, God. Fill us up, Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us up. Fill up Harbin's and make it a place where people see the Spirit of God at work. God, I do pray that you would start a revival. But let that revival begin in our hearts. Let it begin in my heart and in my home. And Lord, if there be anybody here that's never put their hope and their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that today that they would come just talk to me right here in the front if they need to. We can go, we can pray afterwards, we can do whatever, but God... I just pray, Lord, that you wouldn't let them continue to resist your spirit today. God, break down those walls, invade their heart, make it irresistible, and draw them to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray that everyone would stand now as Mark leads us in a closing song. Sing, come thou fount of every blessing.